What is about to happen in your generation will be unlike any move of God we have ever seen. I believe that we're on an assignment this weekend, not just to see your heart changed, but to see you become an advocate to transform your generation. Your roar is the evidence of God's power in you. It is your right to hold dominion over darkness. It is your call to rally other believers around you. God is a promise keeper, but he's looking for promise seekers. He's looking for a generation of young people who will hold on to his word and his promises through hell and high water who will stand and say, God, I'm standing here like Jacob until you bless me. I'm not gonna miss my moment. Come on, I wish someone in this place would open up their mouth and give God some praise. All right, back. Victory Church, it is an honor to be here with you. Uh, like my friend Pastor Jelani said, my name is Kervin, and my wife and I have the privilege and the honor of pastoring some of the most incredible people on planet Earth here at Victory Youth. Come on, somebody. And... um. And it is an honor. I do want to give a shout out to everyone who's uh, joining us online. Huge shout out to everyone that is tuned in. And uh, also want to just take a second to uh, invite every parent. If you have a teenager, if your teenager is not involved with Victory Youth, my goodness, what are you doing, boo-boo? <laughs> you need to get your teenagers plugged in. Every Sunday during our three services, we have an incredible middle school service that takes place here at Norcross. And then as well as for high schoolers, every Wednesday night, it goes down here at 7.30. Victory Youth, get your students here, all right? Also, you can follow us uh, on Instagram. Uh, I think the handle's coming up on the screen in a moment. And uh, you'll follow me as well. We're always posting and giving updates on what God is doing. If you're with it, say, I'm with it. I'm with it. All right. Hey, real quick, can y'all make some noise for my lean-in crew over here? Some students, some staff, some interns. Uh, they're just up here joining me, uh, taking notes. We believe in Victory Youth that note takers are history makers. Amen. And um, so we're going to have a good time today. Are y'all ready for the word? Yeah. Ooh, let's go. Pastor Darius, you gave me the mic. You crazy, man. We, we, we about to go in this morning. So check it out. I, 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 if you're taking notes, uh, like my friends here with me on my Lean and Crew, if you needed a title for today's message, I would title this message Culture Shock. I would title this message, Culture Shock. And I want to read the definition of this phrase. Culture Shock is defined as the overwhelming feeling of disorientation and shock that is experienced by someone who is suddenly, somebody say suddenly, by someone who is suddenly subjected to an unfamiliar culture or setting. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a missions trip, but if you go on a missions trip, you're going to experience a level of culture shock. Because you are suddenly put into a scenario where people look different, they speak different, they eat different. Uh, culture shock can be a very upsetting uh, experience for one to endure. In fact, there's one particular moment, this one situation, TJ, that comes to mind when I think of the term culture shock. Where someone was subjected into an environment and a situation that they really should not have been in. And it could have ended in a bad way. In fact, it did kind of been in a bad way. And I want to take just a moment really quick to, um, to just remember this incredible being that we lost just a few years back. 
in this situation I'm about to explain. I don't know if you guys remember him or not, but if you do, I want y'all to make some noise from my man Harambe. Do y'all remember Harambe? Listen, we will never forget. In fact, I'm just curious. How many of y'all have no clue who Harambe is? Wait, wave your hands. Oh, my Lord. Let me, let me enlighten you. So in 2016, Harambe was a silverback gorilla, and he was uh, a part of the exhibit at the Cincinnati Zoo, right? Harambe was minding his business day in and day out, doing what he does best, right? But then all of a sudden, one day, I don't know what happened, but there was this kid. This kid was probably about four years old, fell into the pit with Harambe. Y'all don't remember seeing this on, like, the news? So it's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, you remember now, right? It was crazy. Everyone's freaking out. Like, everyone has their phones out. They're screaming, oh, my gosh, get him, save him, help him. The kid's just down there. Harambe's looking around. He goes over. He grabs the kid by the leg and begins just dragging this kid around the floor like, whose big head kid is this? <laughs> whose muffin head kid is this? And everyone's freaking out. And then the unthinkable happens. The zoo staff, they go into the pit with Harambe with their guns drawn, and they kill Harambe. Yeah, man. And like it was, it, was, it, was, it was the sigh of sadness heard around the world. But the crazy thing is that this young man came out of the gorilla pit completely unscathed, no broken bones, no scrapes, no cuts, right? Now, I know us good Christian folk, we, we would hear that and say, oh, praise God. But can I be honest with y'all? I got a problem with that. And here's why. Let me explain why. Because I heard, I heard that this kid was a bad problem. I heard that he told his mama before, I heard that he went into the pit on purpose. I heard he told his mama, I'm gonna go down with the gorillas. <laughs> bad. I heard his mama said, you better not. I heard him say, well, what if I do? What you gonna do when I go down with the gorillas? So listen, here's what I'm saying to you. All I can do but imagine, what if that kid did actually and intentionally jump into that pit and he got out of that pit without any scrapes, any bruises? Listen, there was no lesson learned. There was no life lesson learned from that experience. Do you realize this kid is going to be a problem whenever he hits middle school? What you going to say to that kid? Jason, sit down. Who are you talking to, Miss Smith? I've been with the gorillas. You better show Palm or something, Caesar. I don't, you better. This kid is going to be a problem. And I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I look at situations like that and I can't help but put myself into the situation and just imagine what if. Do y'all ever do that? Just like, what if? And I can't help but wonder, what if that was me? What if my mama, my ghetto fabulous mama, working 40 plus hours a week to take care of me and my brother, listen, living in section eight housing in the hood, she done took a whole day off of work to take my big head to the zoo? And whether it was on purpose or on accident, I fall into the gorilla pit? As soon as I hit the ground, poof, Harambe, you gotta keep me. I'm your baby now. <laughs> she crazy. She come down here, whoop me and whoop you too. <laughs> Better break a leg, do something. Could you imagine? I couldn't imagine. 
I couldn't imagine. Listen, I'm going to say something right now. I believe every single mama, I don't care whether you, you're from the hood, the suburbs, the sticks. I believe that every mama, if you push them far enough, they got a little bit of hood in them. Come on, somebody. And it'll come out. You better talk. To, listen, I couldn't, ima- I couldn't imagine that ride home after an incident like that. Because you already know what your mama going to do. She going to get on that phone. And she gonna call everybody and their mama and tell them about this butt whooping. You look, she calling your auntie, your uncle, Uncle Charles, Pookie, Nene. She calling everybody, looking at you in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that was him. In that gorilla pit acting like he ain't got no sense. Yeah, well, guess what? I'ma show him an animal when I get home. You get home, you're punching stuff that don't matter, like the mattress, flipping over tissue boxes. Ah. Now, I don't know if y'all remember when you had siblings, but whenever you were in trouble, you'd always try to get your siblings on your side, right? You try to get them to team up like, I didn't even want to go to the zoo. <laughs> please. Your, little, your siblings are looking at you like, no, please stop. We can't help you this time. Mama said she's going to show you an animal. She ain't never said that. And then it never fails. A few hours go by. You think they forgot about that butt whooping. And all of a sudden, you hear them come up the stairs. Do, do, do. Where you at, zookeeper? <laughs> Listen. That child experienced some culture shock in that moment. But he should have known better because there were signs placard all over the place that said what? You don't belong here. You don't belong here. And can I tell you today, church? That we live in a day and an age and in a society that feels the same way about the God you serve. They have no problem stating. They have no problem stating that we don't want your God in our schools. We don't want your God in the workplace. We don't want your God uh, in the courthouse. We don't want your God in our politics. But can I tell you something, Victory Church family, that in the same way we live in a society that wants your God demoted, it is our job on this earth to make sure that the name of Jesus is promoted, that he's exalted, that he's lifted up, and that his name is made famous in the earth. You see, God has called us as a church to shock this culture from wrong back to right. God has called us as a church, as a body of believers, to shock this world from racism back to righteousness. We cannot sit back. God has called us to be engaged. And can I just, can I just say this? This whole concept, this whole anti-God philosophy, it's nothing new. You realize that? But as we look through the pages of history and even the pages of the word of God, Carmen, we see time and time again where the people of this world would would rise up with vain philosophies and, and ideas that were contradictory to the word and the will of God. And in fact, I want us to look at one particular story that I loved as a young person growing up. I want to I want to take us all the way back to 607 B.C. You see, it's in an era where the people of God, the nation of Judah, They had uh, been overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. Now, for those of you, many of you already know the story, but the Bible says Babylon came in, shut the whole place down, ransacked God's people, burnt down the the temples, altars, just, just made a big mess. The Bible says that they also then took the men and the women who were wise and beautiful and strong, 
and drug them back to Babylon to live in captivity. So here's the crazy thing, though. Here's, here's what's crazy, though, about this season. While these young men and these young women were brought into captivity, the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to call him King Nebi. Somebody say King Nebi. The crazy thing is that King Nebi chose specific young men from the Jewish community to lead as his counselors and his advisors. Come on, how many of you know, even in a jacked up situation, God will still anoint and appoint whoever he wants to do whatever he wants to do, right? So you find these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and their cousin, Daniel. We'll, we'll get to Daniel in a little bit. But I want to take you to this moment where King Nebi made this decree. He, he built this idol of himself. It was 90 feet tall, made of pure gold. And he, he made it a decree, an edict, that once a day, this statue would go forward before the people. And everyone would have to stop what they were doing, bow down, and worship. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they hear this news about this idol. And their immediate response was, skirt! Hold up, player. <laughs> they said, we're not bowing down to anything that is formed by the hands of man. There's only one God that is worthy of my worship. And, and so, so the word gets back. The word gets back to King Nebi that there's these three little Jewish boys that are not bowing down. So King Nebi says, bet. <laughs> Bring them in. They're arrested. They're brought into the king's palace. The king basically tells him this, you are going to bow down because if you don't bow down, I'm turning this furnace up as hot as it gets. I'm throwing y'all in and you ain't coming out until you're extra crispy. <laughs> so in this moment, here it is. In this moment, these young men had a decision to make. Were they going to bow down to a culture that was against everything they knew to be true or were Gonna, were they going to stand firm upon who God is and what he had declared and decreed over his people that they would be set apart? So let's jump into the word. Who, who's ready for the word? Say, I am. am. Y'all kind of quiet this morning. Y'all better wake up. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. I love this. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. For if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. Come on, aren't you thankful your God is able? They said the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But here it is. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image of gold that you have set up. Can I tell you, that's faith on a whole nother level. When you know your God is able and you trust him to deliver you the way you see fit, but you also trust his sovereignty and wisdom enough to say, but God, even if you don't, even if you don't, these young men said, nah, player, I'm not bowing down. So the question I have today, three questions. Number one, who do these little punk hood rats think they were? <laughs> First off, secondly, where in the world did they find that type of boldness to defy a pagan king right to his face, even though it would cost them their lives? And thirdly, what is the church, what do we have to do in order to walk in that same type of boldness? 
Because if I can be honest today, whenever I read about the fatherless homes in America and I hear about the abortion rates that are skyrocketing among teenage girls, listen, when I hear and I see the sex-saturated society that I have to raise my own children in, there are times when I look at this nation and it seems more like a modern-day Babylon than it does the nation built upon the Word of God. But baby, I fret not, because if you lean your ear close enough to the heart of God, you will hear that there is a wind of revival that is blowing through. God is moving. God is awakening a generation to follow Him. I believe it. I fret not, my friend. I fret not. So, there are three things we have to get from the lives of these young men and a cousin, Daniel. You ready for it? Here's the first thing. If you want to shock this culture, you've got to understand the importance of identification. You've got to understand the importance of identification. Here's our text. Our main text is coming today from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start at verse 9. The Bible says this, but you are a chosen people. Come on, look, look at your neighbor say, that's you. All right, that neighbor was real stuck up. Look at your other neighbor. I don't know why they looked at you that way. They just looked at you. Look at your other neighbor. Say, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Jesus prayed to his father in heaven hours before Calvary, and he said this about the disciples and about you. He said that they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Can I tell you, church, that before we even take one more step into a conversation about making impact in this world, there is one elementary truth that we forget sometimes, but we've got to hold on to if we're going to make a difference in this world. You ready for it? Here it is. It's so deep, but it's not. This earth is not your home. I said that this earth is not your home. Paul said to the church in Philippi, he said that our citizenship is in heaven. Like, in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior. Can I tell you something about the world we live in? We live in a society today that, baby, if you don't know who you are, this world has no problem telling you who they think you should be. They will slap a label on your forehead quicker than you can blink your eyes three times. And it's nothing new, y'all. Listen. Your identity, knowing who you are, not who the culture says you are, not who society says you should be, but knowing who you are as spoken over in the word of God is key. You see, do you want to know what the first thing the Babylonians did when they took these boys into captivity? Change their names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They mama ain't named them that. No, no, no. These boys, their names were Hananiah. Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their slave names. And so often, we live our lives allowing the enemy to call us out of our name. But can I tell you something? We have the thumbprint of the eternal God, and my identity is not found in my work. My identity is not found in my salary. My identity is not found in what you think about me. My identity is rooted in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. My God. 
I got 20 minutes, y'all. Y'all sit down. Listen, listen. <laughs> here's why your identity is so important. And here's why the enemy is constantly going after the identity of God's people. Because here's why. The enemy knows that if he can cause a generation to question their identity, that he can cause them to doubt their purpose. And if there was ever a time for this world to have a generation, a church who is completely woke and full of faith and full of purpose and filled with the spirit of God, baby, it is right here and it is right now. Somebody say identification. You got to know who you are. Here's my second thought today as I move along. Not only do you have to understand the importance of identification, Sarah, but you also need to know the importance of consecration. Now listen, I ain't come to preach just to teenagers. I'm talking to parents right now too. Consecration. Because here's, here's the reality. I would define consecration like this. Consecration is the practice of drawing clear boundaries in our lives in an effort to bring honor to God. Because think about this for a moment. If this earth is at home and we're just passing through, don't you think it would behoove us to think twice before we ate anything it offered us? We've got to be a consecrated people. I don't know about y'all, but there is an establishment that I love. By the way, I love food. Anybody love food? I, I just I love food. I lived in southern Louisiana for the past six years. Man, they did me dirty out there. I'm still trying to shake the weight off, but uh, we're going to get there in the name of Jesus. Um, but there's a fast food establishment that I love, and, and I'm going to be honest with y'all. I believe this place has been kissed by God. It is anointed of the Lord. I need y'all to make some noise if you like Chick-fil-A. Come on, some. <laughs> Listen, you know, in Revelation, it talks about the sea of glass that's going to be in heaven. I believe it's going to be a sea of Polynesian sauce. That's, that's, that's just how I feel. So my kids and my wife, our whole family, once a year, we do what we call the Daniel Fast. If you're familiar with the Daniel Fast, just wave at me online. You can type it in and say, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> we do the Daniel Fast once a year. And for those of you who don't, fasting is a, is a, is a, it's an act of consecration. It's you saying, I'm going to abstain from something I enjoy for the sake of finding pleasure in a deeper, more intimate walk with Jesus. It's, it's beautiful. If you don't fast regularly, I would encourage you to do so. But I will say this about fasting. When you love food and you love Jesus and you know your behind needs to be fasting, it comes with challenges. I, I, I'll never forget. We were fasting a few years back. My children were younger and um, they told me and my wife, we're going to fast with you guys. We want to do the Daniel fast too. And I, I thought, wow, that's special. Let's go. I'm proud of you. They lasted two days. <laughs> I'm like, you losers! <laughs> Millennial parenting, man, this is rough out there. So we're fasting and like, I'm on day five. Like when you start a fast, you're excited, you're all lit. Lord, I love you, I choose you, I need more of you. Then you hit like the, the second week. You see your ribs poking out the side like an xylophone. You waking up, you angry at breakfast. Like what did Captain Crunch do to you? You mad at the bacon? Like, what? And I'll, I'll never forget, it was dinner time, and my kids came up. They said, Daddy, we're hungry. I said, Okay, well, what do you want? Of course, out of everything they could ask to eat, we want Chick fil A. You hate me. Get in the car. Let's go. 
We get in the car, we get the Chick-fil-A, we're eating our food. I'm eating a salad. No, I'm gonna say that one more time because y'all didn't feel my pain. I'm eating a salad with no cheese, no bacon bits, no croutons. I ain't even got ranch dressing on this thing, y'all. Like olive oil, it's bad. So I'm eating my salad. My daughter, she says, Daddy, I wanna go play. I said, all right, go play. My middle son, Legend, he says, Daddy, I want to go play too. I said, all right, go. Hit. My wife, Lion, our baby boy, he was a baby then. She said, um, hey, baby, I need to change Lion's diaper. I'm going to take him to the restroom. You got this? I said, I got it. I'm going to hold it down. Go ahead. You're good. So she leaves. And in that moment, <laughs> what y'all laughing at? <laughs> in that moment, all the color went out of the room. It was like black and white. It was just the nuggets and me. They, they, don't, they ain't feeling me, young people. I said it was me and it was the nuggets. And listen, Pastor Darius, I wish I could stand on this stage and say, man, I had the strength of the living God on the inside of me with faith to move mountains, to abstain. All I say is thank God for grace because I ate every single one of my baby's nuggets. I ate the fries, the sauce, the sweet tea. I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> it's rough, man. Listen to me, church. It's hard to live a consecrated life. That's why I have so much respect for Daniel. Daniel in chapter 1, verses 5. It says that the king assigned them and remember, them speaking to these Jewish leaders that the king brought into his service, right? Y'all with me? It says that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Can I tell you something? Daniel was the man. He said, I appreciate the food from the king's table and all of the pleasures that you, this pagan nation, has to offer me. But I'm going to decline that. And the reason why Daniel declined the food from the king's table, watch me. He understood that there had to be a clear distinction between those he was called to lead and who he was called to be as a leader. You see, I'm convinced that nobody in this room, nobody on the stage, nobody watching online, no one wants to live a life where at the end of your life, it will be said of you that you didn't make a difference. We all want to live a life of influence and impact. But oftentimes we forget that if you want to make, inf if you want to make impact in this life, if you want to be a leader of change, you got to remember that influence will always come with an invoice. I'm going to say it one more. If you get one thing today, young person, influence and impact will always come with an invoice. I remember my mama telling me growing up, son, I'm sorry, but you just can't go everywhere everyone else goes. You just simply cannot do the things that everyone else does. Why? Because she understood consecration. You see, I was a bad kid. I don't know about y'all. I cannot stand bad cheering. 
Some of y'all got some bad kids. Let's just be honest. Don't raise your hand. Don't, don't, raise, don't, put, your, don't put your hand down. Your wife elbow on you. Stop it. I, like, like you ever walk through the mall and you see that kid just cutting up? I mean, just wiling out. And the mom's there like, one. <laughs> two. My whole childhood, my mama ain't never counted to one, two, or three. My mama, she say, you got one, two, three seconds to get outside and get a switch and bring it in here so I can light your black behind up. Y'all don't even know what a switch, y'all remember the switch? I know parents do, teenagers, y'all don't even know. Y'all don't know the struggle, man. Y'all get devices taken away. Nah, my mama come around the corner with that switch, my whole butt would fall off. Just. I'm running back to pick it up. <laughs> My friends are like, drop your butt and run. <laughs> Y'all don't even know the struggle, man. I was bad. My mom was the secretary at our church, so she would be in the office doing newsletters, and I would just be wild and Pastor Melba just doing the most. I, I, <laughs> I remember I would go to the fellowship hall. We don't have fellowship halls anymore, but all my seasoned saints, you, you remember the fellowship hall, right? It was the kitchen, young person, the kitchen. It was the kitchen. I don't know why we called it a fellowship hall. It's a kitchen. <laughs> my mama would be in the office typing up newsletters, doing the work of the Lord. And I'm in the, I'm in the fellowship hall, getting the little communion cups. <laughs> I filled them up with grape juice. Lord, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then I pretended I was taking shots. Just, ah, ah. Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I'm sorry. I'm, so I'm sorry. But listen to me, church. And I would love to say as I got older, I got better. But I didn't. You see, what I thought my parents were trying to do in controlling me was actually them consecrating me. I remember my mom telling me time and time again, I don't care how late your friends are staying out. When them street lights come on, you getting in this house. She would say things like, I don't care who's going to that sleepover. You ain't going over there. I don't know what they think. I don't know what they drink. I don't know what they watch. I don't know them fools. And in that moment, I, I rebelled against those mandates from my parents because I thought it was a sign of control but in reality my mom understood she would tell me all the time son you are marked by god and you can run all you want but you're gonna make your way back home she would say this she would say you're gonna make it back in peace or you'll make it back in pieces but she says, I'm not going to sit back and wait for that to happen. So I'm going to draw these clear boundaries to consecrate your life. Because there is a generation that is waiting on you to step into your purpose. There are people that are waiting on you to be who God has called and created you to be. I thank God that I had a mama who understood the power of consecration. Young person, Paul said it like this. He said, by God's grace, he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. We've got to learn to submit to the leadership of Christ and to the authority that he's placed in our lives. Trust your mom and dad. 
trust them. Amen? Amen. Number three, as I close. Well, I got nine minutes and ten seconds, so yeah. I, and I, I want to keep my job. I actually love working here at Victory Church. Not only do you need to know the importance of identification and consecration, but you got to grasp the, the, the necessity that is participation. Look at me, church. Because although this earth is not home, although we're just strangers and aliens passing through, and because this earth is not home, TJ, I'm sorry, dog. I'm, I'm not going to bow down to every bit of rhetoric this world throws at me. Left wing, right wing, I could care less. It's the kingdom of God that I represent. I'm not in the pocket of any political party. It's kingdom. So no, I'm sorry. As an alien passing through, no, I'm not going to buy every lie you try to sell me. But watch me. But while we are passing through, and while there are broken people all around us, God has called us to be engaged. God has called you and I to participate in his kingdom agenda on this earth. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how it closes up. These young men told King Nebi to his face, we're not bowing down. So turn the furnace up, do what you got to do. So King Nebi turns the furnace up. The Bible says the fire was so hot that the guards who opened the doors and threw them into the flames, the Bible says the fire consumed them. It's that hot. King Nebi sits on his throne. And in my mind's eye, I see him looking with a confused look on his face. The Bible says he asks his attendants, didn't we throw three men into the furnace? They said, yes, King Nebuchadnezzar, three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you said to throw them in there in the furnace, king. And I imagine King Nebuchadnezzar stepping off of his throne and kneeling down and looking in closer, saying, well, if we threw three men into the furnace, then why is it I see a fourth man in the fire? And I see him shining like the son of the living God. Why is it? Get him out! Bring him out! They come out of the furnace unscathed. Woo! I love God's word. I, listen, I love the way God does things. God gives us little details and little nuggets with deep prophetic unctionings and insights. I love the fact that the Bible is so specific that says whenever they came out of the fire, their clothes weren't burnt and they didn't even smell like smoke. Come on, some of you have been through some fire in your life, but when God is done with you, you're not even gonna smell like what he just brought you out of. This is the God we serve. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. He makes all things new. He makes all things new. So King Nebi, the Bible says, falls to his knees. And he declares, there is only one God worthy of worship. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this whole pagan nation was turned upside down because three Jewish boys refused to bow down. Can I tell you something? The Bible says, 
in our text that we are to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, listen, they're going to call you out your name. It's just, it, it, it is what it is. But when we live lives that honor God and lives full of boldness, where we don't back down in the face of this culture, the Bible says they, they will see your good deeds and will glorify God on the day he visits us. I want to tell you the story really quick before I wrap up. Years ago, I was performing a concert in um, East Texas. And, um, and some of you may not know, but I, I've done hip-hop music for years, years, years. And, and I was at this camp, and I did, the, I did my concert. And at the end of the show, this young lady walked up to the front, smiling from ear to ear. I mean, she was just bubbling up. She was like the bubbliest, little sassiest little white girl you will ever meet in your life. And she just came up smiling. And she said, are you curvine? I said, I'm curving. She said, whatever. We got to talk. So I jump off the stage, and I begin engaging her in conversation. She points over to a group of teenagers that were across the room, the youth group kids, in their little Jesus t-shirts, and they're laughing and giggling. And she said, Curvin, you know, I bet they live incredible lives. I bet both parents are in the home. I bet they grew up in Sunday school, maybe even go to private school. She said, but I want you to know I'm nothing like them. And Ariel began to tell me her story. She began to tell me the story of her father. She said, my father left me when my mom was pregnant. Listen to what this young lady said. She said, my father didn't even give me a chance. She said, my mom was a crack cocaine addict all my childhood. She said, I would remember waking up in the middle of the night, laying on a dirty floor in a crack house beside a bed where my mom would be doing whatever she had to do for her next high. She said, Curvin, my childhood is flooded with men coming in and out of my house and hurting my mom and abusing me. So those little Christian kids over there, she said, I'm nothing like them. And then a tear came down her cheek as she said, but everything changed the day I was introduced to a man named Jesus. <laughs> she said, everything changed. She said, every Wednesday, when my friends see me in school, they run the other way. I said, why? She said, because they know it's youth group night, and if I catch them, I'm dragging them to church with me. <laughs> I said, word? She said, word. She just hugged me and said, I appreciate what you do. She walked away. Ariel had a fire in her eyes and a passion for the Lord that I've yet to see matched in another believer, just being honest. Which is why I was confused when three short weeks later, I got a phone call. I'm trying to wrap this up really quick. I got a phone call that she had had a seizure that day at school and it passed out during PE, was rushed to the hospital, but was dead on arrival. And the pastor asked me to come speak at the funeral. And family, I'm just going to be honest. I was angry with God. And I was confused. But I gave God my yes. I showed up to that church service. There were about 300 teenagers weeping, consoling one another. And I remember going to the youth pastor, my buddy. I said, dude, your, your student ministry has grown. What, what have you been doing? This is amazing. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, Curve, said, these aren't my students. 
He said, every young person you see in this room, they're here because of the lifestyle that Ariel lived outside of the four walls of this church. And family, although that was a sad night, at the end of that evening, the gospel was proclaimed and over 121 young people responded and gave Jesus their life. And that's not it. And I've told Ariel's story all over the world, all over the nation. My wife can attest to it. And we have seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men, women, children, and adults give their lives to the Lord. But the question is why? Not because of some loud, screaming black guy in skinny jeans. Not because of an amazing church, not because of an awesome camp, not because of smoke, lights, and productions. No, 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 no. No, those thousands of people are now children of God because one 16-year-old got sick and tired of sitting back and watching her generation go to hell. Because one 16-year-old said, God, whatever it takes, use me however you want. Because one 16-year-old said, I'm going to show up to school 30 minutes early and I'm going to walk down these halls and I'm going to lay hands on every locker and I'm going to pray and I'm going to intercede for revival to hit my generation. What if we were that involved? What if we participated at that extent? Can I tell you, church? We've been singing about revival. We've been talking about revival. We've been reading books about revival. And we've been praying for revival. But I believe the Spirit of the Lord would say today that we need to open our eyes to the reality that we are the revival that God has placed in the earth. Come on. You are the move of God that you're asking God to send. We just got to own it and rise to the occasion. Amen. Come on. Who's ready to shock this culture? If you're ready, say, I am. Hallelujah. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, we love you today and we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, that we have the privilege of being a part of your kingdom agenda. We don't take it lightly, Lord. So give us boldness by your spirit to do all that you called us to do. Help us not to overlook those around us who are hurting, who are lost, and who just need hope on this journey, God. Help us to be the hands and feet of your son, Jesus. And right now, if you're in this room, no one's looking around, or if you're online, man, if you've never made the decision to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, can I tell you, that is the first step that you have to take if you're ever going to live a life of any type of influence or impact to eternity. I would love to lead you in a prayer if that's you. The Bible says that we are separated from God because of our sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that God so loved a broken world full of broken people like me and like you that he sent his son to die in your place. And if you believe upon the name of Jesus, confessing with your mouth, the Bible says he is faithful to save you. Come on, my friend. You may have walked into this room or logged in as an enemy of God, but in an instant, you can be transformed into a son. You can be transformed into a daughter. 
If that's you, just pray this prayer. You can say whatever words you want, but the posture of this prayer is this, Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner and that I'm broken. I've made mistakes, but Lord, I believe that I can change. Not by my own strength, but by the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice for me. So Jesus, would you come into my heart? Would you forgive my sin? Would you heal my mind and change me by the power of your spirit? Use me to make a difference in my family, in my world, in my workplace, in my school. I believe you can do great things through me. And Father, I believe right now that according to your word and by faith that I am saved. I am a child of God. Thank you for loving me when I was unlovable. In the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, church, give God one more shout of praise if you love him. Hallelujah.